millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey everyone, just before we start the show, I, I wanted to take a second to say a few words about our, our very kind sponsors. 100 Resilient Cities is a part of the Rockefeller Foundation, which, which you'll probably know is one of the world's largest charitable endowments. 100 Resilient Cities is, is focused on, on helping cities around the world become more resilient to the, the social, physical and economic challenges of the 21st century. They're doing some excellent projects in terms of you know, environmental sustainability, in terms of economic sustainability, and just in terms of you know making life generally better for everyone in cities from Manchester to Miami, to Melbourne, to Montevideo. You can find out lots more, including reading up on some of those fantastic projects, at their website, which is 100resiliencecities.org. Anyway, now on with the show. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge, and this is Skylines, the Cinematic Podcast. So we talk a lot on this podcast. Uh, well, a, a lot is a relative term relative to the rest of the British media, but we do talk a reasonable amount about the cities of of the Midlands and the North and so on. And obviously we bang on about London to the point of absolute tedium. But a major city, a major English city that we've not really spoken about on the podcast, possibly at all, is is the city of Bristol, which is the only other sort of significant uh, urban area in southern England. So I feel it was probably about time we corrected that. So I've got uh, an occasional New Statesman writer uh, who is native to that fine city to join us. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Sean. And as John says, I'm an occasional New Statesman writer and writer for other publications. And I've lived in Bristol since I was four years old, so for 30 years. Oh, wow. So proper. Ne- no, this is sort of a the university thing you've actually you've born now, and bred i am not born but definitely bred yeah so I, I moved out for three years when i was at university and came to london and then i went straight back to bristol and stayed there ever since that's okay well this is the, maybe that's just an interesting place to start actually because one of the problems a lot of english cities have is the sort of brain drain effect yeah. where like people either leave and go to university and never come back or in, in many cases they come for university but then leave because there aren't the sort of graduate level jobs there bristol is quite unusual in not really having that problem isn't it Mm. because it's like there are it's do you get do you get a sense that a lot of people do stick around after after university um yeah i think they do i think bristol's got a very varied sort of 
services industry, I guess, would be the term. So we've got a lot of creative industries. We've got quite a lot of financial services and legal services, as well as two universities and a big NHS provider. So I think there's an awful lot of those kind of level jobs or graduate level jobs that Mm. people want to pursue in Bristol. And that said, you know, I sometimes do wonder if I should have stayed in London, but I decided that I wanted to be in a in a city that I really loved and had a better quality of life to me it felt like that you know even just the simple things of walking to work I really value about living in Bristol but I do think it's a very young city and it's it does seem to kind of keep its graduates and attract people back particularly if those people either move to London for a little bit and then come back to Bristol that seems to be happening a lot right now. Okay, so tell us what's so what it was that attracted you back. What's so great about Bristol that made you think I don't really want to live anywhere else? This is it. Um, well, there's lots of lots of things really. I mean, it's very creative. It's very buzzing culturally. So it feels like during the summer you you have a festival every weekend. I mean, we have the Harbour Festival, uh, jazz festivals, film festivals, ideas festivals, literature festivals. Like. There's constantly seems to be something going on. And in the summer, it's just gorgeous in that respect. And everyone goes out to the river and sits by the riverside drinking beer and listening to live music. And it's all very, it's all very attractive and fun. Um, and also it's kind of, it's a bit of a village. It's, it's a, a good sized city in that there's lots of, you know, industry, there's lots of jobs, there's lots of people around, but it's, it's really manageable. You can walk everywhere for the most part. Um, if you live in the centre and you know there's lots of really good bars there's lots when I first moved back so I moved back to Bristol in 2006 after university and I have to say it it wasn't great on the food and I remember being a proper Londoner and coming back and being like where can I buy sushi <laughs> um, and now like there's been a massive food revolution in Bristol so there's absolutely loads of pop-up restaurants loads of startups and it's kind of it's become kind of a foodie hub so it's been it feels like a very creative and vibrant place to live while still having that smallness and that kind of intimacy where, I mean, it's always a joke that you can't walk down the street without bumping into at least five people you know, which you just don't get in London. No, you get it around certain sort of points. Like it's quite, mm. you tend to bump into people at like major transport hubs or something. Those kind of points yeah. that everyone's funneled through. Yeah. But yeah, generally speaking. Okay, so one impression I have of Bristol is that it's, for good or ill, become one of those places that people move out of London to live in mm. because it's got that kind of, it's, it's, it's southern, it's got those kind of like, you know, it, it's got all those kind of, you know, graduate level service jobs and so on. But it's only a couple of hours from London and the houses are a bit cheaper. Not cheap, but cheaper than London. Yeah. So does that, firstly, am I right about that? And secondly, does it feel like, I mean, does it feel like a load of Londoners have kind of showed up and started like, you know, ruining everything for the rest of you? Well, it's definitely, that definitely has been happening. So it does feel like there's kind of, yeah, down the M4 corridor, a lot of Londoners arriving in Bristol. And I mean, as with all of these things, it has positive and negative effects. So the positives is that an awful lot of people again I'm talking very much from working in a creative industry so I'm sort of funneling it through that perspective but a lot of it feels to me like lots of creative directors lots of publishers lots of artists are moving out of London and coming to Bristol because again it's it, it makes sense it's got that infrastructure and that creative ecosystem and so obviously that brings a lot of vibrancy to the city and you know it means that we're 
for example, we're going to get an indie bookshop, which we haven't had in the city for a long time. And so, you know, you kind of get people moving from London, bringing their skills, bringing their ideas and setting up and really investing in the city. The flip side, of course, is that it can entrench the sort of inequalities. So it has pushed house prices up as house. I mean, obviously, house prices are going up and up and up. But you can sell your one bedroom flat in London and buy a lovely three bedroom, four bedroom period house in Easton. And so, you know, it makes sense for people to want to do that. But then it's like, well, what's that doing to the people that are living in Bristol already? Can they then not afford to get onto the housing ladder? What about the communities that were living in these... I mean, it's very much mirrored in London, I imagine. You know, you get a lot of people moving into the sort of cheaper houses in, in established communities. What then happens to the communities living there who can no longer afford to buy in those places? And so while you have this wonderful surge of creative thinking, diversity, new businesses setting up, like feeding into that ecosystem, we also need to look at what that does to levels of inequality and and the cost of living. Okay, look, we'll, we'll talk more about inequality more generally in a minute, mm. but like, let's just stick with housing because, you know, obviously I'm obsessed and yes. I'm going <laughs> inflict it on everybody else. Um, but like, I'm not expecting you to have like, you know, detailed figures here, but can you give me a ballpark of like how much, what what would like be a sort of a, a reasonable ballpark for like a small flat in Bristol these days? So I bought my flat two and a half years ago and that was for 135. It's a one bedroom flat. Um, so 135,000. So, but that's gone up in value. Um, so for a currently a friend of mine is selling their house which is not far from where I live um so it's not it's a kind of up-and-coming area of Bristol but it's not a highly desirable mm. part of Bristol and that's a three-bedroomed house which they're selling for 290 I think and then in the more desirable parts you're looking at sort of 400 for three three to four bedroom houses this is just like, like putting London in context for me because like I'm yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm listening to these frankly ridiculous numbers and think and I'm in the middle of buying a new flat at the moment and I'm listening to these numbers thinking wow that's really cheap yeah it's, like, it's not really think, cheap it's yeah. insane that yeah. it would sound cheap I mean I always think because when I bought my flat so as I said I, I put the offer in in 2015 and then went through the long process. Um, my dad was buying up up in the northeast, and he's got a three bedroom house for ninety nine thousand pounds, and I live in mm. a very small one bedroom flat for one three five thousand. <laughs> so, you know, it's all relative. But um, I think, you know, we do have a problem with housing in Bristol, uh, and it's the one that is replicated all over the country or in in major cities. Um, there's not enough social housing being built. Uh, before I moved into my current house, we lived in this block of flats and they they had built the social housing next to it. So it was really good because they had social housing and it was like that was part of the the contract for them to build these big block of luxury flats. But they, the social housing tenants had to use a different door. And I think oh, that was yeah, one of the... Doors. And it was just so... I mean, I was embarrassed to live there like because it felt as if there's a problem with social housing. Social housing was seen as a problem to be fixed, you know, to be dealt with mm. by having a separate door for the the social tenants, whereas we were the sort of rarefied living next door in our flats with a different door. And it just, like, unless you start to integrate social housing into those communities, you're just going to keep, keep entrenching that mm. difference. So so on inequality more broadly, I mean, my impression of Bristol is it's... I've, 
of of the kind of the, the the core cities, which are like the major cities out mm. outside London, my impression is that Bristol is is the richest. Yeah, that it's like you know it's the most prosperous. It's higher higher productivity, a lot of good jobs, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Is that does it feel like that when you live there? That it's like it's a place that's doing all right. It's 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 really divided. I I do feel Bristol. I think Bristol keeps winning all these lovely accolades of being the best place to live in the UK, the best place to live in the world. Um, the coolest city and I mean and it is really wonderful in all of those respects but you do have a huge issue with inequality and you have a huge issue with segregation so where I live in Bedminster you know that's kind of a very split area you've got a very gentrified part of the bit of region of Bristol I don't know what you call it it's not a suburb area um and then you've got much poorer areas but then you've got places like Hartcliffe and Knoll West which are incredibly impoverished, where life expectancy is really, really low, and where people in those areas don't even really come into the centre of Bristol. They're sort of very cut off from the rest of the city. And I think it really came to a head, in my mind, in 2016, because, I mean, Bristol overall voted for Remain, but if you looked at the breakdown, it was the same as in... It was like a microcosm of the country. In the very, very poor, deprived areas, it was people voted to leave. In the wealthier more gentrified areas people voted to remain and I think that the more we talk about Bristol as being this kind of really prosperous wonderful cool exciting city the more those kind of communities get left behind and and I I am you know will hold my hands up I'm part of that problem because I bought a flat in an up-and-coming area you know I'm I'm contributing to that gentrification but I also believe that you have to bring those communities with you and, and at the moment we've still got this very top-down idea of gentrification I mean, everybody wants nicer coffee shops in their areas, but if you're doing that by pushing people out, it's an issue. Mm. I don't know what the answers are, but it's also, it's segregated in terms of in of wealth inequality, but also in terms of racial equality. And I think, again, Bristol's got this reputation of being incredibly ethnically diverse, being a great multicultural success, which is all true. But you can, you walk into different areas and they are very, very segregated. So St. George, which is where, Boris Johnson got into trouble last year for talking about whiskey in the Sikh, the Sikh temple. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember this story, but I love a story about Boris Johnson <laughs> yeah. humiliating himself. So. He went to a Sikh temple and started talking about how Brexit would mean opportunities to import whiskey from India. And the people in the Sikh temple were like, well, we don't drink whiskey. Ah. It was all very embarrassing. Um, but, you know, places like St. George has got a very strong sort of Somali community. Same Places like St. Paul's have got a very strong African um afro-caribbean community but you don't see much of a mix you don't see many it doesn't it's very kind of segregated and Mm. i think that's something that doesn't get talked about enough and then that goes back to issues around housing and inequality because the more areas get gentrified the more these communities get pushed out the more it becomes increasingly segregated and so i think that's something that bristol really needs to look at so so in terms of the people who'll be doing the looking here Bristol does have an elected mayor. Yes. Uh, tr- uh, uh, it's currently Marvin Labour's Marvin Rees. Yep. Um, but he's not, pr- prior to that, it was a Lib Dem slash independent at different points called George Ferguson. You know, I mainly remember he had quite interesting trousers. Yeah, he's famous for his red trousers. Yeah, red trousers is always an alarm bell, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um, but how's, I mean, like, is the mayor, we talk a lot about mayors around here, is the mayor kind of a visible presence? Are people aware of the fact there is a mayor and what they're up to? Yeah, I mean, I think so. But again, I mean, I'm probably coming at that from a position where I'm a political geek who pays attention to these yeah. these things. Um, 
We've also got the Metro Mayor, which I never quite understood because the Metro Mayor is Conservative and the City Mayor is Labour and the Lord Mayor is the Lord Mayor. So we've got a lot of mayors going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's, that's more mayors than one city. So, so sorry, to, to so clarify for anyone who hasn't followed this in depth, the Metro Mayor for the West of England covers Bristol, Bath and North East, North East Somerset, and what's it, South West, South, uh, South East Gloucestershire or yeah, something? something like that, yeah. But it's, it's like, the, many years ago, there used to be a made-up county called Avon, which was yeah. basically Bristol, Bath and their commuter areas. And it's most of that, except the other bit of Somerset didn't want to play. Yeah. So it's 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 kind of mostly the Bristol metro area, Sometimes except for a bit of it. Sometimes you still have to put Avon in, in an online form when they don't accept that you don't live in a county. That's, <laughs> like, that's helpful. Yeah, Annoying. Although, like, Br- Bristol is, like, is the oldest sort of problem for the system of counties yeah. <laughs> in Britain. Like, Bristol was kind of, like, outside the county system in, like, the 1300s or something. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it became a, a county borough, meaning it was effectively its own county. Yeah. Because it grew up as this kind of um, important port city on the River Avon, which meant that, like, half of it was in Gloucester, half of it was in Somerset. Yes. Gloucester and Somerset, uh, which made it a right bugger right to, to run if you're like you know um because because that was the whole governmental system back then so they just drew a line around it said right bristol can be its own county then yeah and that's been like six or seven hundred years now so basically it's bristol's fault is what i'm getting at here yeah i i don't blame you for blaming us like, I, mean, <laughs> like... I, I mean that's only fair but yeah so you do have these competing mayors with different levels of power from different parties yeah and it's probably i mean i this is it's not the only region where this has happened but i guess i'm wondering is like you know do, does does tim bowles the tory metro mayor seem to be doing anything do him and marvin reese get on like is 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 there a kind of even among like political types is there any awareness of this kind of i don't know i, I really i mean i really don't know i don't think i even knew the metro man's name to be honest Oh, he's amazing! No, he's worth he's worth (laughs) he's worth looking up because he's a sitcom character. Oh, okay, that doesn't surprise me. He's just like his entire. I remember his entire campaign was like standing in muddy fields, scowling. Yes. Um, he just looks like someone who's going to make a harumphing noise. Because I think that election came up against the 2017 general election, so it got kind of swallowed up. Yeah. It all happened around the same time, and and then there was a referendum before that, so it was all a bit confusing. But um, I think in terms of the Bristol City Mayor, so I feel like I, George Ferguson was very, very visible. Um, and part of the reason he was visible was because as well as dealing with policy, he was um, using inverted commas, the fun mayor. <laughs> so a lot of his initiatives were to make Bristol fun and creative. So he put like a big water slide down Park Street, which is a really steep hill. And he did things called Make Sunday Special, where they'd close the traffic in the city centre and have, you know, entertainment and they would put out loads of sofas and it was an idea of bringing communities together. So I feel in that respect, he was, was very visible. And, and Marvin Reese, you know, is more of a, a politician, I guess. Mm. Um, and, and obviously, and I'm, I'm saying this because I'm, you know, a, la- a Labour voter and have that left wing perspective. But he's inherited a, a lot of difficulties because of the cuts to local government funding. And so, I mean, I wouldn't it's it's you can sort of see these struggles that are happening in central government being played out in local government in terms of where's the money coming from, where are the savings to be made mm. at a time, as I say, when we're seeing increasing inequality. And I mean, one thing that's related is, you know, the rough sleeping crisis in Bristol is is absolutely horrendous. And like, as I say, I grew up there. I've lived there since 1989 or 1988. And um, 
I remember in the 90s, like the rough sleeping was such a huge issue. And then it was, you know, got so much better. And you, I mean, on an average day walking to one of the offices where I freelance at, I'll pass about seven rough sleepers in the morning. That's a half hour walk plus the temps. Yeah. And so, you know, it's with, just something it's, you didn't see 10 years ago. You just it? didn't. And yeah. you, but you did 20 years ago. Yeah. It's like one of those things that the, the last Labour government very successfully dealt with. Yeah. Got no credit for. And now it's the problems back. So yeah. that's, that's terrific. And it's, it's really, and I do, you know, it, it just seems to be getting worse. And it's, and as I say, the council and the, the mayoral system has inherited these, these swinging cuts mm. and it's hard to know. But I mean, I don't know enough about the workings of the council and the budgets and those kind of arguments to really make an informed statement on what they're doing. But that's just my observation that we're seeing these increases in inequality. We're seeing more and more rough sleepers and knowing what the central government cuts to local government are. It it feels like you can't ignore that relationship. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So we've been talking about mayors, specifically about... Marvin Rees, the elected mayor of Bristol since 2016. Uh, I thought instead of talking about him, it'd be cool to, to talk to him and kind of get his take on, on the city and cities in general. He was actually quite keen to talk to the podcast because uh, this month Bristol is hosting the Global Parliament of Mayors, which, if you're a long-time listener, you may recall, uh, was the uh, creation of a guy called Ben Barber, who is a great uh, US political scientist and urban theorist who we interviewed uh, all the way back in about episode 13, I think. It was a frankly terrible recording, even by our standards. It was technically the worst recording we've ever done, because I was still very much getting the hang of these things. But anyway, uh, the Global Parliament of Mayors, which which uh, Ben Barber conceptualised, is now a real thing, and this month it's coming to Bristol, and, and Marvin wanted to talk about it. So, so why not? Let's do that. Uh, while I'm doing my usual, sorry about the quality of the sound recording on this, this tape thing, which I know I do most episodes. Uh, this is a 
Skype recording with all that entails. We were hoping to do it in person when, when we were on a panel together at Labour Conference this year. But uh, the noise in the room is just dreadful. So ironically, the reason it's quite a poor quality Skype recording is because I thought it would sound better. Anyway, here's my conversation with Marvin Rees. If I can start by asking, you've got, the, you've got the Global Parliament of Mayors coming to Bristol soon, right? What kind of made you think that this was a good initiative to get involved in? Well, I think most broadly, we are what we're witnessing in the world at the moment. Our number of political failures, some of it's down to policy, but actually what we're also witnessing is a failure of, I think, a global order that's overly dependent on nation, nation states, national governments. And, and I think one of the missing ingredients to global governance has been the voice of cities. And by that, I don't just mean individual cities, but I mean international networks of cities. And, and that's what we are, that's what we're convening here. Cities from every continent coming together to talk about and plan for, uh, migration, urban health, which is a global thing, urban security, and obviously with reference to climate change as well. And I think the cities will bring a different perspective and a different way of thinking, not in competition with national governments, but to add to the way the world speaks about these issues and tries to tackle them. You say you've got, you've got mayors from all continents coming. What are the kind of cities you've got involved this year? Freetown, Cape Town, uh, Mannheim, got about five or six mayors coming from the United States, coming from Nicaragua, Argentina, Lahore in Pakistan, from India, Indonesia. We've got, I think we should have two from Australia. As I speak right now, I think we have 80 odd mayors signed up. Uh, sorry. There are nearly 90 mayors signed up, but we anticipate some mayors won't get visas, but, uh, but, um, but importantly, alongside that, it's not just the mayors. We've also got the networks coming. So we've got C40, ICRE, OECD, but Eurocities, US Conference of Mayors. So I think, you know, the potential is that for the first time in, in, in such a grand way, you know, we'll have, you know, major cities, but also the representative of those cities. So, I mean, to play devil's advocate for a moment, why, why does it need to be a face to face meeting? I mean, couldn't all this be done with, we're chatting right now on Skype. Couldn't all this be done over the internet? I think it'd be hard to have 85 mayors interacting on internet. I mean, I, but I do hear this, I do hear this, you know, the skepticism. One of the issues we're trying to tackle is how many, how so many international meetings I've been to are actually not a good use of time. You know, what I don't want to do again is sit around a table for four hours as mayors tell each other stories about projects at community levels that they've done that you can't easily pick up and take back home. What we actually are doing is, is, is are a number of things. One is we'll be, uh, developing positions that will feed into uh, global work that's going on right now. So we'll be speaking into the global compact for migration and the mayors will be together. They'll debate it, look each other in the eye, take a vote and agree a position and, and a set of positions to feed into that. Same with urban urban security, with UN Habitat and then with WHO on, on urban health. But there are a number of other things that we're doing as part of the global parliament and mayors that are really important. Uh, one is we'll be... Sh- from the UK's perspective, we'll be showcasing British business. We've got a number of uh, businesses from the UK who will be at the Global Parliament at Mayors, talking to the mayors about what they do, and obviously there's an opportunity to, to do business. Secondly, we're hosting the first ever formal meeting of the M8, all the metro mayors and the core cities. They have not sat in a room together before to talk about what 
the most powerful non-Westminster politicians can agree to, to agree on it to deliver over the coming year. That's going to be a very important session. Because you see Brexit, which is a Westminster debate at the moment, we've got to get a non-Westminster voice. And we're also um, supporting a launch of a women in leadership uh, initiative that's been started by women mayors. Um, so we'll have a room of women from uh, politics and business in a room at the same time. So, so I find this idea of the M8 quite interesting. It's, it's both the metro mayors and the core cities, right? And those are slightly different organisations. I mean, how's that, how's that going to work in... Did you think they, they, they will speak with one voice or do you think they're going to have similar priorities? Well, in all things like that, we can't force anyone to do anything. But what, what you can say is, when you get a room like that, is do, pe- do the people in the room think there is a prize to be won by being much better joined up? If we agree, then it's about working out how we get that prize, how we get the join up. Now, I think it's probably self-evident that there is a prize to be had by the M8 working more effectively with the core cities because there's a massive, because the core cities meet as a network, the M8 meet as a network, and they overlap in sovereignty anyway, right? Because the metro mayors, uh, uh, you know, have the core cities in their geographical patches. I think we lose a lot of impact if we don't have a joined up voice. Brexit's the classic example. Uh, but also what we do around air quality and how, you know, the extent to which we're strong enough to get a scrap, scrappage scheme, diesel scrappage scheme from government. So what we do around uh, mental health and the mental health of our workforce and skills agenda and productivity outside of London. So yeah, I, I think there's a great opportunity, but all, all we're doing in Bristol is providing the space for that conversation to be had. If there is an appetite for it, then we'll continue to support it. If there's no appetite for that joined up working, then we're not going to force the issue. You're the mayor of Bristol. You're elected as kind of a council leader, but you you have your own metro mayor in in the Conservative Tim Bowles, who's the metro mayor for the West of England region, of which Bristol is kind of the heart. I mean, do you guys work as a team very often? Yeah, we do, because we have to, uh, um, because that's in the interests of our part of the world. First of all, I'd say it's really important to say, mayor, I'm not merely elected as the council leader. I think the old model of governance where the the leader of the council was elected by a small number of councillors after their their own elections, that is a council leader. Uh, as a mayor of Bristol, I'm directly elected by the city, so I'm a, I'm a city mayor, and, and being the council leader is part of that uh, role. But, I mean, I, it goes back to, I think government got the whole uh, piece around combined authorities back to front. Now, it's up to us to make it work now because none of us benefit if we don't make it work. But the back to front was in this, that government shouldn't have come out to us and said, here's a political structure we want you to take on. And if you take on this political structure, then we will release more money to you and bring you to the top table so you can have a discussion with us about priorities in the future. Totally the wrong way, because just giving people a political structure designed in Westminster or copied from Manchester uh, does not guarantee the behaviours that you'd want to see. What they should have said was, all right, we want to see you as regions uh, self-organising, working across the boundaries of local authority areas, coming up with long-term plans that you've all cooperated around. We want to see you develop your own uh, governance structure and culture that will enable you to deliver against that way of working in those long-term plans. And then we'll, then we'll come and talk to you about what you're proposing. Uh, but it was, it, like I say, it was back to front. Government gave us a structure and, and the, the structure does not guarantee the behaviours. 
But having said that, we are working hard to make sure that we we do that. We do the long term planning. We are working cooperatively uh, across boundaries because it's absolutely essential to Bristol and the west of England and it's essential to the rest of the country. So specifically in your region, I mean, what are the kind of policy priorities in and around Bristol that you, you are hoping to deliver on? Housing and transport um, and education and skills around productivity. These are absolutely essential at that at that regional or uh, you know visible uh, level. That's absolutely essential to the, the, the future resilience of our economy and our society. But I'd say there are things that 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 move around that as well uh, that are equally important that we have to deal with. Mental health is massively important for us. Um, in Bristol, we have Bristol Thrive City now as well. Um, you know, one of the, one of the, uh, thought experiments I, I played out at some of our regional meetings was what would it be worth to the West of England economy if we were able to say we have the most well workforce in Europe with the fewest numbers of days of absenteeism? So health is, health is a key strategic issue for us. Uh, and I think for the future of our economy and, and, and our, and our society as well, population health and feeds into the affordability of the NHS. Um, and uh, one that's really hard to grapple with, to, to grab a hold of, but is massively important for us, is social mobility and inequality. Uh, we're a rich city, but we have six areas in the top 1% most deprived uh, in England. And that's the, that I, I shared at Labour Conference, that's a city embarrassment. And if we want to have integrity as a city, we need to tackle those inequalities and make sure your parental background is not the single most effective indicator of where you end up in life. Uh, so uh, I want to tackle those two things, but they're very, very hard. But we, in short, we've got to build houses, we've got to tackle congestion, and we need the skills that the future economy needs so we can build an inclusive economy. I was going to say Bristol is sort of the old one out of the core cities, isn't it? Because like, generally speaking, they're, they're often Midlands or Northern. They're, they're certainly post-industrial. Bristol is kind of seen as, as, as Southern, and it's, kind of, and it's kind of rich, to be to put it bluntly. I mean, does that mean that you have slightly different challenges from many of your, your peers in the M8? They're different, but they're severe. And I, I really, I kind of react against that uh, because I think, I think it costs Bristol. So when people are thinking about uh, where to invest and how to rebalance the economy, um, you know, they, 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 you know, there, there is a, <laughs> there is a gradient that, that, you know, that tilts in favor of the North or the nations, I feel. And that's, and, and, and that, that's a problem for me. I mean, look at my own story. I grew up on the underbelly of this city. Single mum, 1970s, lived in a refuge, lived in poverty, could hardly put food in the refrigerator. We, we ch- in my household growing up, we, we had to make a decision whether to put another 50p in the meter or go and buy a pint of milk. You know, this is real. 25% of our kids in poverty, 20% of the kids in nutritional poverty uh, in the city. Resolution Foundation told me it's one of the worst cities to be born poor in because because of that um, inequality. And uh, Running Me Trust recently identified us as the seventh worst city to be black in, which is ironic with me being a black mayor. So, um, but these, this is why I was elected because the city's had enough of this. So there's a rebalancing that needs to happen um, uh, within Bristol, and I think uh, you know Bristol, you know, as among many places are. are has to be included when we're talking about rebalancing the economy with London and the the southeast. Um, And it's, you know, it's compounded our housing issue. We've got a huge challenge around gentrification in Bristol. 
in parts of Eastern where my mum bought her house for £16,000 a number of years ago when I was terrified of her getting a mortgage because we didn't own houses growing up. And I, the idea of my mum getting into thousands of pounds worth of debt to buy a house uh, scared me, but I'm glad she did buy it. But, you know, those houses are, you know, £16,000 back way back when. They're now, you know, £250,000. So this is these are in areas that people used to be scared to go, like Eastern, around St. Paul's, which is now being named one of the coolest places in, in England to live. So these have massive implications for Bristol. And remember, this is the, this is the city of the Bristol bus boycott. If you don't know, in uh, 1963, at the same time as Martin Luther King was preparing to give his I Have a Dream speech, Paul Stevenson was in Bristol organizing the Bristol bus boycott because the Bristol bus company would not employ black or Asian uh, staff on the buses. And so we had our own kind of version of the Montgomery Boys boycott, which actually led, which opened the door on UK equalities legislation, the first stuff that started to come through uh, through the 60s and into the uh, 70s. Bristol was central to that. And we carry that legacy forward uh, into now. So it's really important that government and other organisations actually see us, not just as a hip city, but as a city serious about taking on major social challenges. Okay. Uh, talking of buses, my, my listeners are going to be very disappointed if I don't ask you about transport, because that's really what they're here for, to be honest. Well, I said it was our priority. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but you guys have just introduced a sort of, uh, the, what's it called, the metro bus, the sort of the bus rapid transit system, right? I mean, what do you, what would you like to do with, with the city's transport system? So yeah, we, we inherited the BRT and, and that's now running and people, um, you know, I think they find it a, a quality, uh, service. They've been, as with may, many major projects, there are some glitches, but, uh, you know, it's pressing on for us next. But we know we need a chapter change in the way we do public transport. We're hoping to be able to make a major announcement on buses and the bus offer in the city very, very, uh, soon, but we need to jump through a couple more hoops. But in the backdrop as well, um, some people know that we've launched, uh, um, we've started looking into an underground, overground mass transit system for the city. Um, we've gone through the first feasibility study and it came back positive. And now we're in a second feasibility study, which is due to bring back its findings in uh, December. But basically, we, you know, we, we can't can't carry on with this patch and mend approach to public transport. We need a chapter change and we think that will offer the chapter change the city needs. And the first route that we'd look at would go from Temple Meads out to the airport. Uh, which is the only airport, the only international airport in the country that isn't connected by a dual carriageway or a rail line. So you need predictable uh, travel there. So it's, a, it's also a major employer, and we anticipate that route could curve through the south of the city, which is the part of Bristol that's been left behind by the city in many ways, um, and, begin, and support us with our agenda around inclusive economic development. So, uh, you know, we, by December we'll know um, whether this mass transit system um, is a financial gobble, but at the moment all, all signals are positive. And, and to be clear, would that be a, a rail upgrade or light rail, or what, what kind of um, what kind of vehicles are we talking here? Uh, well, at the moment, you're talking about driverless pods that don't need rails now. So one of the one of the interesting things as we've begun to look into tunnelling and um, and underground networks is you don't need the rails now. You can have a, a, a you know, I'm not going to give you a scientific explanation, but a big flat bit of concrete with a white line on it <laughs> and the driverless pod will will follow the line. Um, and that cuts down on a significant amount of cost, not just in uh, building the, the system, but in how you store the vehicles as well, because they're not locked on to uh, to rail lines. 
So there's a, there's a great opportunity for us to look, you know, 10 years, five, 10 years into the future and design for the technology that's going to be with us, not for the technology that was, that was needed when the London Underground uh, uh, was built. As I said, there'll be a portion of that underground, a portion overground, and we just have to look at how the numbers um, stack up. Well, we look forward to seeing some good maps as soon as, that's, as, soon as you're ready to talk about those. Marvin Rees, thank you very much. And now, back to Sean Norris for, frankly, the most important bit of our conversation about Bristol. Like, it wouldn't be complete on this podcast talking about a city without doing without doing transport i'm not i'm not yeah. I, I i know it's not your area so i'm not going to ask you to come up with like a sort of master plan for sorting out the bristol transport system or anything but like what's it like as a place to get around like you said you mainly walk is that yeah i mainly walk um and that's because i love walking <laughs> so and because you know i live fairly central i can pretty much get to most places within between half an hour and an hour um but yeah the the we so we the main thing that's been happening in Bristol with transport is the metro bus. And it's it's a new bus system that that's trying to connect different suburbs of Bristol. And it was very, very delayed. And um but it's open now. It was launched about two weeks ago. The obvious question here is like how can a bus system be like what's special about it? Well why do why did it need building as opposed to They built like loads of new lanes, new bus lanes. Oh right, um, okay. But then and I think this is true. I, I mean, I think it's true, but it might be an urban myth. But apparently, they built the lanes too narrow for the buses. Okay, that <laughs> feels like a, that does feel like the sort of thing that might that might happen. Yeah. I will look into that. But um, yeah. So there's a. I mean, most people who come to Bristol complain about the bus service, particularly when you compare it to somewhere like London. I mean, it's very. It is expensive. When I when I ended up living just outside Bristol for a year, a couple of years ago. And at first, the bus service was really good, and it, there was a bus every half an hour to the city centre, and it was, I mean, it was expensive, but it was, at least ran in a, a good fashion. And then they cut a load of the services, and again, I think this is because it's a more rural area, so you're seeing those cuts to rural bus services. Um, and it meant that at one point, on the sort of commuter time, there were two buses within five minutes of each other and not one for an hour. Oh, terrific. A bit, but... um. So I think, but I think there has been a lot of investment in trying to make the buses better. Mm. But the fact is, yeah, they, that there has, there's always a lot of debate and irritation around the buses in Bristol. But we also have a mini train system that everyone loves. Oh, really? Okay. I know nothing of this. Well, tell me of them. So it's not very regular, but it's really cheap. And so as long as you are able to travel at the times that the train service is running, it's great. And it connects, um, Temple Meads to Severn Beach and, so you can oh, get like okay. a little shuttle train between across the city. Actually, like my, the one time I visited Bristol, one of my enduring memories of it is like Temple Meads is a surprisingly long way from the city centre. Yeah, yeah. Like, I sort of imagined that like it would be like basically dead central, and but no, it's like another shops? fifteen minute walk to get from there to like what feels like Bristol. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and there's no M and S Simply Food, which is my big bugbear about Temple Meads train station. That's shocking. <laughs> See, people say that gentrification has gone too far, yeah, but no. this is this is the counter argument, yeah, really, you know, isn't it? Why why can't I buy a little salad and some chocolate covered pretzels before I go to London? Yeah, but um, yeah, no, it is quite far at the city centre, though. I and but there are good bus bus links from the city mm. centre to the station. So yeah, so transport is always one of those big bugbears for people who live there. What should if someone was visiting Bristol? What should they see? 
Ooh. Well, I would say that you'd want to go to the water, to the waterfront, to the docks. And then you've got the M Shed, which is like a museum about the history of Bristol. When I was a kid, it was the Industrial Museum. And they've still got so many old industrial things, like an old bus that you can sit on, pretend you're driving. <laughs> but now it's like the local history. I love a local history museum. Yeah, and it's very interactive and it's really good for kids and it's free. And, um, and then if you walk down the docks, you can go to Spike Island, which is a contemporary art gallery. And just walking around the boatyard in the, the sort of river area is lovely. You've got um, the Watershed Art Centre, which is a really good cinema. And just, yeah, I just like being by the water. And during the summer, they had like live music outside this place called the Arnolfini on a Thursday night. And you could just sit and listen to DJs and music and drink craft ale. It's all it's very a, Bristol. It sounds, like it's coming, it sounds like it's quite a livable city for that awful yeah. word. But it's just like, it just means like, you know, it's somewhere nice to live. There's like it's a really happening. nice city yeah. to live in. And it's got a... It's got a very good DIY art scene. It's got a lot of creative people wanting to make stuff and wanting to make it a nice city to live in. Um, it's obviously very famous for its graffiti scene. Um, so right next to where I live, literally in the park at the end of my road, they have a graffiti festival every year and like international artists come along and, and paint. Um, you know, you've got a lot of artists working across you've got a lot of musicians obviously we've got the famous kind of massive attack history link and stuff and porter's head and you're also really close to the countryside and i think that's you know a really lovely part of it you can just go to the bracken beacons really easily or you can go to the mendips and glastonbury mm. and wells but again that's one of the really interesting things i think about bristol is that politically you know you've got a very labor left-wing city but then Jacob Rees-Mogg's constituency yes. is, is just around the corners. and Yeah, that kind of like, I mean, like on the other side, you've got the Cotswolds, right? And that's yeah. like the most Tory place in the world. Yeah, yeah. It's just where all this, yeah. So you're, it was sort of, but again, I think that's symptomatic of a lot of major cities. Yeah. You're, you're in your kind of left-wing bubble and, and outside it's... It's scary it's, out there. Yes, it's, it's a different yeah. place. But then, you know, and obviously the New Statesman's been reporting on this a lot, but, you know, Bristol's right up next to Somerset, which is incredibly impoverished. The cuts have been really damaging. So, you know, where do these inequalities sit? And we talk a lot about urban inequality, but the inequality between the cities and the rural areas is a big problem. Mm. Well, at risk of becoming a self-parody, I think often the solution is improving transport so that, like... Yeah, absolutely. So that people can, access, people can live in one place and access jobs in another. Um, we should be wrapping up, but to, to do that... You did promise that you might do this podcast in your broad Bristol accent, which you've not done. So I was wondering if you'd give us a little sample. All right, then. Okay, so, like, when you live in Bristol, like, everyone takes the piss out of the way you talk. But, like, that's why I talk, like, differently to how everyone else in the city might do. That's amazing. Okay, <laughs> like, that's made me really happy. Because I have some friends who don't live in Bristol who laugh at me every time I say anything in the slightest bristolian mode and i'm like i don't even have a bristolian accent my family are from the north <laughs> like, so but yeah you can't go to school in bristol and not pick up a few accents i i i think i've said this in the podcast before i have an essex accent that i can't do on tap it just comes out in certain situations yeah it's a broad estuary accent yeah um like i used to my, my, my <laughs> 
I, I have an embarrassing tendency to kind of slip into it when talking to plumbers or something, which is like, not, yeah, you know, yeah. not, but it's not, it's not a conscious thing. I can't do it deliberately at all, but it's kind of weird how these things kind of slip out sometimes. You've got loads of Bristol phases. So you've got like Gert Lush and Rosie to my lover. And everyone says, I'm going down Bed- Bedminster Asdol. So you put an L on the end of Asda. I... No one knows why. <laughs> Well, if anyone out there does know why, please do write in and tell us, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and produced by me, John Ellidge. If you enjoyed the episode, then please do consider leaving us an iTunes review. It really helps other people to discover the show. And, you know, the more people get listening to the show, the sooner I can achieve my real goal of world domination for the medium of trains. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.